This evening I would like to continue to explore the theme of our personal stories and awakening. In the last talk I spoke a little bit about the mixture of longing and fear that is evoked in us when faced not only with the possibility of awakening, but also with the possibility of change. There is a part of us that deeply longs to be free of conflict and suffering and separation. There's a part of us that fears what we don't know and what we might lose. There is a part of us that intuitively reaches for greatness of heart and mind, to understand what it means to be really free, to see the end of limitation. I don't think there is anyone who came here looking for a path that would enable them to stay the same. We all come here trusting and hoping for some form of transformation and discovery an opening in our lives. Yet even within this, there is a part of us too that questions the price that we might have to pay. It becomes very, very clear to us, as I spoke about the other evening, that the dissolution of separation is the dissolution of a separate self. And it is this prospect that raises the voices of defensiveness and fear within us. At times we are afraid of being no one, afraid of being invisible, afraid of what might happen to us if we were not invested in and guided by our stories in life. I think in the West this dilemma is particularly acute. We live within a culture which asks so much of the individual, which asks us to have such a perfect sense of individuality, which asks us to be perfect in so many ways, to achieve, to attain, to become, to do and to produce. There is so little rest for anyone. For many of us, a very essential part of awakening in our lives has been discovered through learning how to step away from this whole world of demand and the whole world of becoming and shoulds. For many of us, a whole part of awakening has been found in learning how to reclaim a sense of our individuality, a sense of who we are, our own uniqueness, to be at peace with our story. I think we may have discovered in our lives, through pain and through struggle and through conflict, the extent to which we live somebody else's story and somebody else's journey in our lives. 
When you sit in meditation and you hear these voices saying, that's not good enough, that's not right, that's not perfect. When you sit in meditation and find yourselves being pushed by models and by goals, whose voice are you listening to? Is it truly your own wisdom, your own intuition? Or do we find ourselves replaying over and over and over again the voices of so many authorities, so many influences in in our lives that have said it is not good enough? Expectations and models and images and demands are thrust upon us through our lives and they do play a very significant role in the kind of personal mythology, the personal story that we construct and come to believe in. Through the authorities and influences in our lives, we learn about good and bad, about acceptable and unacceptable. And we have within hold within us our own fears and our own at times desperate yearning for acceptance and approval and affirmation. And because of this yearning that we carry within us on a very cellular level, we find ourselves absorbing the images and the models and the expectations of others and striving to achieve them, struggling to attain them. Too often in our lives, we find ourselves driven by the twin forces of reward and punishment, of success and failure. Even here in the meditation, many times people say they experience themselves essentially as losing and trying to win. Trying to win what? Some standard, some model of achievement, some model of acceptability. At times we find ourselves pursuing goals and ambitions and aspirations in our lives and in our meditation that we believe to be our own. No one has ever said here it's possible to succeed or fail at meditation. We have an inner voice that is really alert to those signposts. We find ourselves measuring and judging and assessing ourselves and believing those judgments to be accurate, to be a truth. Why is it so? We have learned standards of acceptability and when we haven't learned them, we have become so accustomed to living with the specter of these standards over our shoulder that even when they are not demanded of us, We create them for ourselves. We have discovered in our lives and in our world what is acceptable in in personality, in saintliness, in our bodies, in our minds, in our wishes and aspirations. And we have also discovered in our lives the penalties that we pay for being guided or governed by someone else's story and following someone else's path. We discover it here. When we feel the ever-present tension of judgment, of rejection, of denial, 
of telling ourselves we are not good enough. Through our life experience, I think we have learned the lessons about this way of being. We have learned the lessons of frustration and self-negation that are intrinsic to living a life that is dedicated to gaining approval and affirmation. We have perhaps explored the very significant landscape of pain and struggle that is born of being exiled from an authentic way of being that we can trust in and feel guided by. As a result of these lessons that we have learned in our lives, many people come to a point when they say and resolve to no longer be a prisoner of anybody else's models, anyone else's expectations or needs. We may come to a point where we resolve to no longer be just who someone else wants us to be, to no longer attempt to achieve models of perfection and acceptability that are dispensed by the authorities in our lives. Now, that kind of resolve is a kind of awakening. That kind of resolution is born of life experience and born of understanding, and it's a very genuine aspect of awakening because that is the point when we really begin to question what is our life all about? What is our path really about? What are we concerned with? What do we value? What do we conceive as being possible for ourselves? But it is not that simple. It is also true that learning how to trust ourselves, learning how to listen inwardly, and how to embrace every aspect of our being with openness and compassion is one of the most difficult lessons we are ever asked to learn in our lives. In coming here, in being willing to spend this time alone and silent, in being willing to spend this time just exploring our own inner landscape, in a very real way we are embodying the lessons of courage and wisdom that we have learned in our lives. This willingness to be still and to be listen and to listen is really embodying our own understanding of the need to set aside the multitude of voices that are endlessly instructing us to become someone other, to strive for something other. We are willing to be here. We are willing to be present. This is such a rare, a rare circumstance in our world. In being willing to be still and listen, we are embodying the understanding of the need for a great patience and great trust, not to be governed by our own judgments and assumptions, which so often just endlessly replay the judgments of the past. In being willing to no longer be so obedient to those judgments, we are questioning 
whose voice it is we are actually listening to. For many people, it has taken years of struggle and pain, of doubt and fear, to come to a point where you can do this, to come to a point where you actually feel you are listening to yourself, being guided by your own intuition and living your own life. It can take years to come to a place where we feel our choices are actually born of wisdom and intuition that lead us to a life of creativity and authenticity. Now, in the light of all of this struggle and effort, it is very easy to understand the ambivalence, the reluctance, at times the implacable resistance that arises when we are greeted with the invitation to perhaps not be so invested in our story. When we are greeted with the invitation that perhaps there's something to explore in letting go, in opening and not holding, we're unsure whether this is the right step for us to let go. I think if you have spent a lot of years in your life actually learning to be someone you feel all right about, to be visible, to be embodying confidence and trust in your work, in your life, in your relationship, you know, to live in a spirit of emptiness, to hear that invitation, to be no one. It can sound like another prescription for invisibility, for surrendering, perhaps, many of the gains we feel we have made in our lives. I would like to look a little bit about this, at this area of personal mythology, what I mean by it, what I mean by our story, to look at the wisdom that is offered through our stories, and also to look at the limitations that holding on to our stories might impose upon us even a good story. And those of you here who have had happy childhoods, you know, pretty happy lives of contentment, you don't need to apologize. You know, there are those people in the world who have had that good fortune. For those of you who have unhappy childhoods, you also don't need to apologize. We are not interested in blame or justification. Now, we all have a story. Everyone here has a story, sometimes many stories, about ourselves, about our world, about our lives. We are meeting our personal story almost in every thought that we think. That's amazing. We are meeting our personal story in almost every thought that we think. We meet our stories in the kind of thoughts that we experience, the judgments, the opinions, the beliefs, the conclusions. It tells us something about our stories. We meet our stories in the moments when we find ourselves avoiding and resisting, or we meet our stories in the moments when we find ourselves pursuing and chasing. We meet our stories in our fantasies, this tells us a lot about our stories. 
We made our stories in our memories. We made our stories in our values, the things that we think are worthy of holding and aspiring to, and the things that we reject and deny. Our stories are made visible in our fears, in what we hold on to, in the descriptions that pass through our mind. All of our stories have beginnings. Now, some of our stories are just, they're kind of like the short stories. <laughs> the short stories, you know. You sit, you know, and you know, you have a difficult sitting, and then you have a judgment, and then you have a conclusion, and you know, then you have a belief about being the most wretched spiritual seeker ever to have appeared in the history of spirituality. And then in the next moment, the next sitting, you could have a nice sitting and you feel pretty good about yourself and you have images of saintliness and <laughs> convictions about giving the talk that evening. And, you know, pretty sure you're, you know, you're right up there. You're a star, you know. Many of our stories are very fleeting. They come and they go, dependent upon what we're holding on to in the moment. It's that simple. There's our story. You know, we're a success, we're a failure, we're a reject, we're a, a shining example of spirituality. We go through these motions throughout the day, depending on what we are holding on to. They're short stories. They change as our experiences change. They change according to the memories or the feelings or the thoughts that are present within our experience. We also have other stories, kind of gothic novels, <laughs> in a war and peace length. You know, these stories have ancient beginnings. Sometimes we don't know where their beginnings even are. We don't even know when this story started. Those are the stories that we keep returning to again and again, our essential vision of ourself, our sense of identity. That, you know, if you were to reveal your innermost secret thoughts about yourself, there would be your most deeply ingrained story. The ones that are hard to let go of, the ones that are hard, seem very hard to change, the ones that we see stretching long into the future, the ones that seem impossible. Sometimes it's important to understand the ways in which our stories are undeniably linked to the stories of others. There is no story that exists in isolation. No story that exists in isolation. This is a relief. This is truly a relief. Because, you know, if you really understand that, you can stop blaming yourself. Really just stop blaming yourself. Did you invite your story? Do you remember a moment in your life when you chose to be a failure? A moment in your life when you chose to be a disaster? Of course not. There is no such moment. Our stories are interwoven with the stories of so many other people. A mother who might reject her daughter 
may be passing on a long lineage of rejection. A father or a mother who pushes their child to strive and to succeed and to achieve may not even know what story they are helping to create and where that story began in themselves. So often we inherit many aspects of our stories, aspects of our stories that are passed on from generation to generation to generation. Hatred and prejudice, judgment, suspicion, cynicism, fear, these are all feelings that are impossible to trace their beginnings. Part of our lives has been spent in learning our own story through the stories of others. We learn to hate, we learn to reject, we learn to exploit, we learn to avoid. We learn this through the stories of others and equally we learn these lessons that become so much part of our story through our own life experience. We have had, most of us, moments in our lives when we have experienced rejection, when we've experienced fear. You may have had moments in your life where you experienced abuse and exploitation. And all of these experiences and the impressions they make upon you become a theme, become a chapter informing the story that you hold about yourself. We have experienced moments of intimacy, of love, of connectedness, of acceptedness, acceptance. And these experiences too and the impressions they leave upon us play a part, become a chapter and a theme in our own stories. Through them we create our own personal version of reality, our personal mythology. Sometimes we forget that no one is ever born a victim nor a master. No one is ever born an exploiter or an exploited. No one is ever born an abuser or an abused, a winner or a loser. All of our past and the past of others binds together to shape our present to give birth to a sense of who we are in this moment. Now our sense of who we are, our understanding of who we are, shapes our experience of life. It shapes our experience of the world and other people. Our sense of who we are, found within the descriptions and the judgments and the conclusions and images we hold of ourselves, this sense of who we are shapes what we believe to be possible and what we believe to be not possible for ourselves. Through the shaping in these stories, we have what we call a self, a separate self. And in inhabiting this sense of a separate self, all things in the world and all people in the world are separate from us and separate from each other. This is at times what we call our individuality, our uniqueness, even if it's not a uniqueness that we would necessarily choose. 
Now, in living our stories, we become our stories. In living our stories in the present, then our present, when not understood, also shapes our future. I would like to give you an analogy of this that I have used once before. It is a, perhaps a helpful way to look at this. Imagine a group of people gathered together to climb a mountain, a tall mountain. They've all heard that at the top of this mountain they're going to have this most wonderful view that is going to be really delightful, something they've never seen before. So this group of people gathers together at the appointed time at the bottom of the mountain. One person, one person in that group, looks at the mountain and says, there's got to be a better day to do this. Another person looks at the mountain and says, no way, I'm going home. It's beyond me. Another person brings a suitcase. They've got emergency rations and medical kit and, you know, hot water bottle and flares and parachutes and space blankets and crampons and hiking boots and basically everything that they could possibly think of that they're going to need to get up that mountain and to deal with all the inevitable dangers they're going to face. Another person in the group, well, they, they're barefoot and wild-eyed and wild-haired, you know, totally unprepared. They go zooming up the mountain, leaping forth, you know. They don't have a map, no compass, nothing. You know, they're blindly charging up the mountain. Another person, you know, looks and they consider it, you know, and they've got a good map and a good compass. And they have some pretty clear intention. And they start and they get around the corner and they meet the first obstacle. There's a rock on the path. And they sigh, look at it and shake their heads. They know too much. It's too much. I've got to go back down. Another person starts merrily off, you know, and they get around the corner and they're walking and, you know, they're very purposeful and they see the first bench and they sit down and they forget <laughs> about the rest of the climb. They're so much enjoying that view, you know, that they, this is far enough. Why would anyone want to go, want to, go to the top? This is absolutely perfect right here. Another person, you know, they're starting out, you know, they're feeling pretty tired, but they don't want to lose face, no way, you know. So, you know, a little slip and, oh, my ankle, you know, and it's really too bad. I really wanted to do this, but, you know, <laughs> it's just beyond me. I'll have to try it again another time. Another person will look and say, where's the shortcut? Where's the shortcut? You know, I could rent a helicopter. I could get a mule, you know. There's got to be another way of doing this, you know. Why should I have to you know, do all this slogging in order for a view? All of these people are living their story. They're all living their story. They are making visible in their journey their belief in who they are. 
in being directed by and in living their story, they are actually reinforcing the past. Their experience in the present is reinforcing the truth of the past. And in doing that, the story and the past is continuing to shape not only the present but the future. Now, sometimes it is useful to extend this analogy of the mountain to our approach to doing a retreat to our lives. How much in a retreat are we simply reproducing the patterns of our lives? How much are we living out our stories? And letting that, or giving permission in that, for our stories to live on. A retreat tells us the story of our lives. It's a mirror. And in doing this, it's a great blessing. Because where else will we learn new lessons? Where else will we learn where freedom is? Except by opening to new possibilities. This is our opportunity to question these realities, to question these versions of realities, to question the truth of so many of our assumptions and conclusions. In doing this, we question the reality of the whole world of appearances and separation. Now, there are times when our thoughts tell us Well, in our approach to the mountain, whether it is cautious or wild-eyed, we are actually expressing the wisdom that we have learnt from the past, that we have learnt from our stories. One person may say, well, you know, before I rushed up the mountain and I fell and I got hurt, and so therefore I need to learn how not to rush. Another person might say, well, you know, I surrendered too much in my life and now I need to take risks. You know, that's what I need to do now. Another person might say, well, my whole life has been driven by ambition and now I need to learn about gentleness and about compassion. Another person might say, well, I do have done too much and I need to learn how to rest. Now, this can be true. There is a real possibility that this is true. Hopefully, the wisdom that we have learned from our lives, from our past, from our experiences, from our stories, is a wisdom that teaches us how to live now with greater skillfulness and balance, not so imprisoned. But I think it is also important to explore the possibility that as long as our past and our stories is the sole reference point, the only reference point for how we are in the present, then we are not free in the present. We are still bound to the past, even and especially when our present is a reaction to the past. When our present is a reaction to the past, we are still bound to the past. You know, you see this on a retreat. You know, maybe a person has had terrible times with authority in their lives, you know, really felt oppressed and punished. And so they come on a retreat and they see the schedule and they say, no way, 
You know, here's another authority telling me what to do. So when everybody's sitting, they're walking. When everybody's walking, they're sitting. When everybody's sleeping, they're up, you know. And there can be a sense, well, you know, now I'm free. Well, free of what? Free of what? Where are we freeing that? Another person may say, well, you know, I've been such a, such a wimp in my life, you know, whenever I've met pain, I've fell apart, you know, and, you know, surrendered. And this time, you know, this time I'm really going to show I'm not like that. You know, so you see them hours later being carried out of the meditation room, locked into a full lotus, you know. <laughs> well, haven't we proved a lot? You know, haven't we proved a lot here? You know, and another person says, you know, well, I've always been a master, you know, I've always been a winner, you know, and here I'm going to learn gentleness. There's snoring in the back of the room. You know, well, yes, we're really free, really free of the past. It is important that we all learn from our stories, that we learn from the past, that we learn through our experience, that we learn from moments of pain and struggle in our lives, because this learning is what leads us and allows us to live with dignity and with wisdom and with compassion in the present. It is important for all of us to have learned in our lives what contributes to sorrow and suffering and what contributes to open-heartedness, to balance, to well-being. These are lessons we need to learn again and again in our lives, and we learn them nowhere else but through our stories and through our experience. We need to learn those lessons so that we are no longer willing to consent to any further participation in division, in conflict, or in pain. We learn in learning those lessons. We learn how to nurture and how to embody all, all in everything that contributes to freedom and well-being. Our stories teach us about pain and its cause. Our stories teach us about happiness and well-being and its source. We learn these lessons so that we are free to move on in our lives, so that we are able to let go. We learn these lessons so that we are free to draw upon something else other than the past to guide us in the present. We learn these lessons so that we are free to draw upon wisdom, upon confidence, upon understanding, to shape our present. Something I'd like to read to you from the <coughs> discourses of the Buddha. A person walking along a high road sees a great river its near bank dangerous and frightening, its far bank safe. They collect sticks and foliage and make a raft and paddle across the river and reach the other shore. Now suppose that after reaching the other shore, the person takes the raft and puts it on their head and walks with it on their head wherever they go. Would they be using the raft in an appropriate way? No. A reasonable person, a reasonable person 
will realize that the raft has been very useful to them in crossing the river and arriving safely on the other shore. But that once they have arrived, it's proper to leave the raft behind and walk on without it. This is using the raft appropriately. In the same way, all truths should be used to cross over. They should not be held on to once you have arrived. You should let go of even the most profound insight or the most wholesome teaching, all the more so unwholesome teachings. To be free in our lives, to be free in ourselves, we need to be willing to let go of what has gone by. To let go of our investment in what has gone by to, as a reference or guide in our present. To open to new ways of being. To open to new possibilities that are filled with vitality, with questioning, with exploration. When we look at our past and look at our stories, we can see how pain and fear, how sorrow and joy have formed so many of the central themes of our identities, our sense of who we are. When we look at our past and look at these impressions and influences, we are looking at events in our lives. Many of the events in our lives have served to shape our stories and our understanding of ourselves in very dramatic ways. Sometimes the events in our lives have scarred us deeply. Experiences of abuse, of rejection, of disillusionment, experiences of terror, experiences of failure, of loss, of rejection. These are all experiences and events that wound us. And part of healing and part of awakening is certainly opening to the truth of the events in our lives. This opening is necessary, a significant part of letting go of guilt and blame. It is a significant dimension of awakening to a more profound sense of reality. What is most important for us to understand is that the truth of the events in our lives cannot describe or define the truth of who we are. And this is sometimes the hardest understanding, that the truth of the events in our lives, the truth of the past, is not the truth of who we are. No matter how many rejections you may have experienced, there is no truth to the conclusion that you are unworthy. No matter how much pain you have struggled with, there is no truth to the conclusion that you are a victim. No matter how many failures you have experienced, there is no truth to the assumption of inadequacy. When we marry the truth of the events in our lives to our sense of who we are, this is when we create a personal mythology that we invest in. We have a conclusion. And in that conclusion, we sentence ourselves to endlessly replaying the past in different forms, being married to the past in an endless dance. Look at what sticks here. Look at where you get stuck. 
Look at what repeats itself. How much of that is simply present? How much of it is to do with what has already gone by? How much of it is to do with isolating conclusions and assumptions about ourselves and accepting them as being truth? In this investment and in this holding, we perhaps surrender the possibility of opening to new ways of seeing, to see that letting go of our investment in our stories, letting go of our holding to our conclusions and our assumptions, is the most profound gift of compassion we can offer to ourselves. There's something from a story I came across in a newspaper I'd like to read to you. In Ireland in the 1960s, a young nun was sent as a temporary worker to another convent and stepped into a world she had not known existed. Her job was to supervise the women working in the convent laundry, a gloomy and claustrophobic room. The women wore old clothes. Mostly they were quiet and passive, apart from one or two who hadn't been there long and were rebellious. A number of them were single mothers whose children had been taken from them. The convent graveyard held the bodies of 183 women. Some were married, mothers rejected by their families. Others were destitute and homeless. Many of the women she supervised stayed in the convent until they died. The most extraordinary aspect of it is they were told they were not allowed to leave. They were locked in at night. Legally, they could have walked out of the gate any time they wanted, but very few did. For many, there was no place to go. They lived and died in a virtual prison. Until the 1970s, thousands of Irish women were condemned to a life of servitude and confinement with the knowledge, coercion, and approval of family, church, and state. Places were created to remove from society unmanageable women. Not only were they never told they could leave, but the regimes emphasized their sin and guilt. They were called the laundry girls, seen but never spoken about. The nuns who cared for them were equally imprisoned by their own beliefs that led them to collude in the theft of the freedom and dignity of thousands of women. Because we find this quite extraordinary. And yet, how many of us are imprisoned by our own, our own misunderstanding? By our own misunderstanding? How many of us really deeply have the vision that the gate is open? The gate is open. And we can walk out at any time. That we don't have to inhabit a world which is boundaried by limitation. We don't have to, no matter our history, no matter our past, no matter what has gone by, this moment is an open invitation without judgment or blame. This moment we are present in is a profound moment of possibility, our willingness to let go of our investment, not to erase our past, not to negate it, but our willingness to let go of investment is means walking out of the gate. 
It means leaving behind us that sense of misplaced, misunderstood reality. This is the opportunity that is offered to us here to cling to nothing, to hold nowhere, to not accept as truth any assumption, any conclusion, any identity, any belief, to not invest in any judgment, any opinion about ourselves. There's one more thing I would like to share with you. Enlightenment is like the moon reflected on the water. The moon doesn't get wet, the water isn't broken. Although its light is broad and great, the moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch wide. The whole moon and the whole sky are reflected in one dewdrop on the grass. Enlightenment doesn't destroy the person just as the moon doesn't break the water. The person doesn't hinder enlightenment, just as a dewdrop doesn't hinder the moon in the sky. The depth of the dewdrop is the height of the moon. The time of the reflection, long or short, proves the vastness of the dewdrop and the vastness of the moon in the sky. Remember that even the smallest dewdrop reflects the whole of the moon. That we don't have to erase anything, achieve, attain, perfect, improve, get rid of. All of these agendas are related to our holding on to our story. Imagine a day, perhaps explore a day, where there is no agenda except to know the nature of being able to reflect, to see and to understand what is reflected. Perhaps in opening to this possibility of being so profoundly present, so awake, a great truth can emerge, the truth of understanding who we are, the truth of understanding all things. If we could have just a couple of minutes quietly together.
May all beings be free from clinging. May all beings know the end of limitation. May all beings live with wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.